0: You are listening to Asian SkyCast, the show that brings you the most updated aviation industry insights.
1: Okay, welcome to the Asian SkyCast. Coming up, we have an interview with the law firm HFW about what the aviation industry is going through contract-wise, specifically in areas like force majeure. This is actually part one. Uh, it's going to focus mostly on commercial aviation, which is uh, something we usually don't cover, but I think we're, we're going to be moving more and more into Part two will be about business jets, uh, as well as what life is like at a law firm during this time. And that's going to run during the week of April 21st. Our quarterly report is also coming out April 21st, and HFW contributed a, uh, a written feature to that too. So, so please look for that. Uh, go to our website at Asian Sky Media and subscribe. Uh, that way you'll make sure you get the quarterly report. It's free. We appreciate it. And again, We know how painful this is right now for everyone, and we just want to thank all of you for listening, for all the feedback, for the subscriptions. Uh, We really do appreciate it, and thank you to everyone at Asian Sky Group, and here we go. Okay, welcome to the Asian SkyCast. Uh, We are here with Gordon and Justin from the law firm HFW. Gordon, can I ask you to introduce yourself?
0: Sure, thanks very much, Max. Well, my name is Gordon Gardner. I'm a partner in the aerospace team in uh, in the law firm HFW, as Max said, in uh, based in Hong Kong.
2: Thanks, Max. Uh, I'm Justin. And I'm a partner at HFW. Uh, my specializing area is aircraft finance and leasing, and uh, I'm based in Hong Kong.
1: Okay. okay. Gordon, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, HFW team and the focus? And then we can sort of talk more about what what the issues that we have.
0: Sure. So HFW is a, what we say is a a sector focused law firm. Um, So we have more than 600 lawyers across six different sectors and in aerospace, which is one of those sectors, we operate as a global team of more than 80 lawyers. Um, I think it's across 10 different offices. And in Asia-Pacific, we've probably got about 30 people or so just just focusing on aviation. And then in terms of the type of advice we provide, it's really across the full spectrum of the industry. So it's finance and leasing, which is where Justin comes in, and also sort of commercial contracts and regulatory issues. Uh, and then you move on to disputes and incidents and accidents and that sort of thing. So it really is, you know, right across the, the industry and all the players in the industry as well.
1: And what percent of of your book or your clientele is commercial aviation versus what we would call business aviation?
0: I think um, it's probably fair to say that uh, a larger part is on the commercial aviation side, um, you know, because it's a much bigger industry. Um, But, um, I mean, I think we are seeing much more activity or have been recently seeing much more activity on the business aviation side. And it's obviously an area of the business that, um, you know, is quite important to us. Uh Yeah.
1: So look, uh, Gordon, we we asked you guys to uh, to come in today because um, what's happening with COVID nineteen and what the airline and business jet industry, really any aviation sector, is facing is certainly in my lifetime unprecedented. Uh, I guess the closest experience I had with it was nine eleven and and what happened after that. But you know, even with the global financial and the recession, we never had a, a worldwide almost grounding of of aviation. So. I think a question that we're getting a lot and something that we want to better understand is what does force majeure mean in the age of something like a a coronavirus pandemic? I know it's a broad kind of topic, but...
0: Yeah, so, well, let's start by just sort of looking at what we're actually talking about. So force majeure, French for superior force. So it's an event that's beyond a party's control. Um, So um, the actual meaning of it depends on which legal system, which law applies so in china for example it's defined in legislation where in hong kong it absolutely depends on what's written in the contract um, and does covid19 automatically constitute force majeure um, the answer is no um, but the chances are it's, it's going to it just depends on how the
1: contract is written from a common law perspective and when if i think about something like that would be written as an act of God. Mm. Um, that's more, I guess, an insurance type contract to talk about natural disasters, or is it similar? Yeah,
0: I mean, typically, typically it would cover natural disasters. I mean, I think one of the things obviously to to, to mention is that within the Asia-Pacific region, force majeure is not an unusual event because we have typhoons, we have earthquakes, you had the volcanic volcanic eruption in the Philippines not that long ago. So these, these events do happen. Um, I mean, I suppose if you want to get into the really technicalities, COVID-19 is not actually stopping itself parties from performing their contracts, or it probably won't be. It's actually the government travel bans, the government restrictions, the government lockdowns, which is preventing the performance of the contract. And so, you know, you could argue, depending on how the contract's drafted, that unless your contract refers to the acts of government's, rather than epidemics or whatever, then it's not an event of force majeure.
1: But aviation is such a regulated market and is so inherently reliant on not just regulators, but governments allowing you to fly over their airspace, allowing you to come into the country. I mean, if governments say you cannot fly here or you cannot use airspace, why isn't that? I mean, the airline has no control over that. Uh, And this is
0: where it comes back to what the contract says, because what, what the clause should say is at any event beyond a party's control, including dot, dot, dot. Uh, and, and one of those would be, um, you know, um, the acts of governments. Um, but in any event, it would fall within, um, I think, um, you know, acts beyond a party's control.
1: But what you were saying is that, okay, so if I understand it, in in mainland in the legal system in mainland China, there is a concept for force majeure. It's defined in the legislation. Defined in the yeah. legislation. And then in the case of Hong Kong, you would have to specifically mention pandemics that cause governments to take an act?
0: Or? Well, it, 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 as I say, it all depends on how it's worded. I mean, if, it, if you just have a sentence in your contract saying, in the event of force majeure, this contract is terminated, then that in itself is kind of meaningless. Um, but if it says um, any event beyond a party's control, including pandemics and um, the acts of governments, then it would constitute force majeure.
1: So then if I look at it from two perspectives, one inside of China and one out. I mean Gordon, I'll go to you first and then Justin. Um so if I'm a, an airline and I've just placed an order for uh aircraft and now all of a sudden I've woken up and I've realized I'm not gonna need I'm not gonna need these aircraft. What I mean, what can you do in that circumstance?
0: Uh well, firstly you've got to look at whether or not there's um, there's going to be a breach of the contract and then you've got to look at the contract to work out what the what the consequences are. Um, there may well be force majeure, but again, it comes back to what's in the contract, um, which is, you know, I keep on banging on about that, but it's, it's absolutely, the wording really, really matters. Um, but ultimately, in your particular scenario, then the airline would be, you know, talking to the counterparty um, to, to try and renegotiate because at the end of the day, there is this... Um, you know, feeling at the moment within the industry that we're all in this together and that people want to help each other out and collaborate and that sort of thing. Um, uh, and, and so I think that the chances are you'd be able to renegotiate, um, the terms of that
1: particular contract. And Justin, you are a leasing specialist, specialist, sorry.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, just echo what Gordon has just mentioned, um, First of all, it really depends on which legal system we're talking about. And secondly, uh, in, a, in a common law uh, legal system uh, in particular, uh, in a lease agreement, for example, or a sale and purchase agreement, um, it, it's almost certain um, the current COVID-19 situation isn't um, specified as a, as a force majeure. So it's, it's not. It's not. It's not. Um, but um, the reality is, uh, which we have seen in the last month and two, uh, some, act, some airlines acted earlier, some a little bit slower, depends on where you are. Uh, but the common thing we have witnessed in the last month and two is, despite what the contract has said, they all come to either the manufacturers like Boeing aircraft uh, or, or, or Airbus, or to Bombardier, for example, they all come to them saying, you know, look, we have this situation. We can't take delivery. All our nearly all our aircraft are now parking on the ground. What can we do? Uh, in most cases, they would they would have a, they would have a you know a, a solution to resolve that. One of the things is uh, the delivery slot has been pushed back. Uh, with leasing companies, for example, um, although the leasing document would have already said very clearly there's no circumstances where you would not pay rent. Um, but when airline comes to a lessor saying, look, you know, we are in this situation, I just simply can't pay rent. Can I get a rent deferral or can I get a holiday? Um, I think as far as we know, many leasing companies, including the very uh, the, the leading aircraft lessors are given that um, uh, rent us
1: but to that, airlines. But you were, you were saying to me before we started that the leasing companies and the leasing company contracts do not have force majeure. So if I'm an airline or if I'm a charter operator or whatever I am, and I've just taken on a lease, I don't know, three months ago, now all of a sudden I have no customers. I can't even fly. Maybe I can fly, but there's nowhere to fly. Um, I actually have no legal, there is no legal recourse, regardless of what the situation is. There is no force majeure provision. You've taken on a lease. It's your obligation to pay. There isn't
2: uh, a legal argument because of the COVID-19 to say, you know, I have this situation. I'm not going to pay. Uh, so it's f- legally, that's not an it's argument. F- it's
1: effectively like a restaurant who says I've leased this area and even if because of the pandemic, I can't serve customers, but I have no, there's no legal way to get out.
2: Unfortunately not. But as I said, commercially, uh, as everybody trying to help each other out, uh, and, and to, to face the facts really, you know, for example, in, in a normal circumstance, a leasing company uh, you know, would have said, look, you have to pay, otherwise I'm gonna take my aircraft back. But, you know, given where we are at the moment, one, they will have nowhere to replace the aircraft. And secondly, you know they're gonna have to bear the long-term client relationship in mind in order to trying to help each other out. I guess that's the way.
1: So uh, Gordon, then uh, I think I understand what you guys are saying. But now I'm looking at it from the perspective of the next contract that gets written or I'm sure this conversation is being had in every single boardroom and every single legal office and every single um, corner office about, okay, so now we're entering into a new contract of some kind. We know now what can happen from a pandi- pandemic. Um, we know that it's global in nature. I mean, How are companies thinking about those next contracts and protecting themselves the next time?
0: I think ultimately it comes down to a question of risk and who's gonna bear that risk, because force majeure is a provision that allocates the risk in the contract. Now, clearly there'll be more focus on force majeure clauses and what it contains. Um, typically, they've been the boilerplate clauses at the end of a contract that nobody really spends much time looking at because by the time you've got to that stage, you're, you know, you've you had enough. Um, so I think there'll be more focus on those clauses. I think you may see, um, you know, I don't know whether the insurance market is going to respond and provide some sort of pandemic insurance in light of this event. Um, That's a possibility. Business interruption insurance isn't really going to respond because you need physical damage for that. Um, So I I think it's really just a question of trying to mitigate the circumstances commercially as much as anything else, because in the contract, you're kind of limited as to, to what you can do in terms of trying to circumvent a pandemic like this.
1: Yeah, I mean, Gary Moran from Aon has been on this podcast before and he's talked about how difficult it is to get insurance for business interruptions and, and things like that. But do you think that there will be specific sort of pandemic risk written into these legal contracts? What happens if the whole world effectively goes into, I mean... It, it's
0: it's it's possible. Um, I mean, ultimately, the parties can put in the contract what they want, Um but, but in a sense, how is that going to differ from the current force majeure clause? Because ultimately, you know, we're in a situation, probably of force majeure in most contracts. And therefore, what are you going to put in your contract? That's going to be, that's going to be specific to pandemics. That's going to sort of change the, the risk matrix.
1: So then how does it, so from the way it works today, for example, would you say that most of the companies you deal with have an arbitration clause in their contracts?
0: Um, I think it just depends on the type of contract. And, um, you know, it might be arbitration, it might be litigation. Um, yeah.
1: If it's arbitration, let's say, effectively then it is up to the arbitrator to decide whether something was force majeure.
0: Yeah. And, um, you know, there, there are lots of arguments that come into play. I mean, one of the things that we would be recommending to people at the moment is to keep contemporaneous records because, you know, the situation is so fluid at the moment and it's changing so much that. You know you want to keep a record of what is preventing you or delaying the performance of the contract um and um i I think that that's quite an important factor
1: gordon from a maybe regional perspective or you may even have a global perspective you have a view on where this is all heading
0: um well the the thing is nobody nobody knows how this is gonna um pan out nobody's got the crystal ball. but I think, you know, in terms of recovery, you've got to look at Asia as being the first uh, region to to emerge. And then, from the aviation point of view, I think probably domestic aviation is going to going to recover first. Um, um, leisure travel um, will probably come first before corporate travel, given restrictions on travel budgets. Um, but that's going to um, depend on whether or not passengers have got the confidence to fly. Um, so that's that's an interesting. Um, aspect. I think one of the one of the other um, things to note as well is, you know, we've got these lockdowns at the moment, but how are the governments actually going to go about lifting these lockdowns, lifting the travel restrictions? Um, and, you know, what is the exit strategy? Um, I think ultimately, it's got to be a gradual lifting of these lockdowns, because it's just not feasible to maintain them over any period of time. Um, but how that's going to play out is, is going to be fascinating to watch.
1: What, what's the li- what's the liability for an airline in all of this? If a government does say, okay, a restriction is lifted. But, I mean, there must still be a lot of discussion going on about, is it safe? And I don't know, maybe you can't talk about it. But, uh.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, you know, airlines do have liabilities under, <clears throat> under the international convention that governs travel on airlines, the Montreal Convention, ordinarily, and... You know, under that convention, there are specific circumstances where the airline may have a liability. But, um, you know, provided um, certain precautions are taken, and IATA have certainly issued a number of briefing notes in relation to that, um, then you would hope that um, airlines are not going to be particularly exposed.
1: But, like, I go back and I think after September 11th there was a significant change in the way that airlines had to approach security and not just airlines, airports, everything, the whole, the whole, the whole works. Um, do you see a similar change coming in terms of like, we've been talking about hygiene a lot on this, this podcast, but you know, do you see a big change coming into the way that the aviation industry as a whole needs to approach, approach this? It's a
0: really interesting question. Uh, I think, you know, Maybe um, screening of passengers' temperatures before boarding is going to become the norm. Um, possibly, you know, in the short term, you know, use of masks on board flights will be required. Um, you know, how do you persuade passengers to get back on board aircraft? Um, you know, will you require health certificates issued within, you know, the previous week or something like that? You know, it's just it's going to be, as you say, fascinating to see. I, I think, as you say. It, there were obviously ways in which the aviation industry reacted post 9-11 in terms of um, prohibiting carriage of certain items on board the aircraft. And it's just really a question, if you look at the bigger picture, of how you go about assuring passengers that they're not going to be ill when they, when they fly.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting comment you made about, you know, could you enforce uh, everybody having to have a health certificate that effectively clears you? You know, it's not unlike in some ways... Um, You know, I remember when my wife was pregnant and, you know, being told, well, just make sure you don't fly, not just for health reasons, but because you may not, they may not allow you on the plane after a certain point or countries wouldn't let you in. So I guess there is, there is precedent. Um, Hong Kong airport's been taking my temperature for, you know, since I started coming here. All right. So that's.
0: But they'll be on arrival or on departure. That's right.
1: But just in the health certificates, I
0: mean, there are health certificates and health certificates and, you know. Are they going to be valid? You know, is your mate down the road going to do one for you? You know, that's and
1: is it just for COVID, or all of a sudden are you screening for any kind of sort of contagion? If you have a common cold, will they stop you from getting on the plane?
0: Uh,
2: there, there was a very interesting discussion and debate about how uh, the air quality within a cabin um, can be. You know. Some people say, oh no, you, that, that's, they have a very complicated system in place already. So rest assured. Some just don't agree with that. I guess one thing the manufacturers could possibly do is trying to improve that, uh, in addition to what, whatever they have at the moment. So in other words, just trying to see whether technology wise that can be done, uh, to give people more assurance and also, you know, using, uh, some other technology like you know temperature taking uh, system you know, instead of you know having the temperature gone on everybody's heads, you have a system or you have a screen there. People just walk through uh, without noticing it. That could could be the possibilities. I would say.
1: Yeah, no, yeah, I, I, I agree with you, um, Gordon. You were mentioning earlier uh, we were talking about government bailouts and how the economy is ultimately going to come back. And if I think about it from the perspective of, and I'm thinking US government now, but I know you have a you gentlemen have a much closer view of Europe and Asia too, but if the government puts all this money in, whether it's Boeing, whether it's airlines, whether it's suppliers, whatever it is, does that effectively nationalize air travel? I mean, the airline industry has been now, this is through what, the fifth wave of bankruptcy? I mean, how many times can an industry reboot? Well, and also the
0: question is: if it's taxpayers' money, is the government going to support every single airline, um, or are they just going to try and pick the winners, and so then get their money back ultimately? Um, it's it's a really difficult um, question for for governments to answer. Um, and also, is it you know how do you do it? Is it by way of guarantees or loans or um, equity stakes? Um, So, and and a lot of the bailouts that have been spoken about are in the context of airlines, but obviously you have the whole aviation ecosystem, you know, you go down the supply chain. So unless you're actually going to be providing support in terms of, you know, salaries and that sort of thing for some of the smaller players in the business, then, you know, it's all very well sort of bailing out the airlines, but ultimately all of the, you know, the the suppliers further down the chain are going to fall away if this situation carries on for a period of time.
1: Justin, does this give an advantage to... The Chinese national carriers, let's say, because they are effectively already tied into the government, um, does it make it easier for them to get support?
2: As you said, um, um, the big Chinese carriers, you know, China Airlines, uh, sorry, uh, China, China Southern or China Eastern, they are they are state-owned already. Uh, for the government to pump into cash, for example, uh, uh, should be a, a relatively straightforward process. Uh, in, you know, compared with, uh, other Western, uh, airlines. But as Gordon said, there are so many airlines, uh, in operation. You know, the big threes, um, could possibly get cash injection quite easily. But what happens with the others?
1: You know? You're talking about like the Spring Airlines exactly. and the smaller.
2: Exactly. And, um, I guess, you know, one of the, one of the possibilities would be, um, of course, you have the uh, government, mon- government money to build them out, uh, but um, put them in a, in a commercial context. Uh, some of them may not may never gonna survive. So they're, they're, we probably will see some uh, reshuffles in the
1: market. And a- HNA has effectively been nationalized. Is that? Yeah, uh, I I, I you guess may, you can't say
2: I can't see anything about that. I guess, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but wait, wait, uh, but that that's been uh, as you said uh, a lot of news about H and A. What happens with the industry in, in the end it, it is going to be seen. Um, but there are uh, in addition to H and A, there are dozens of uh, private-owned airlines, you know, some of them are doing pretty well still, Uh, you know, I was talking with a couple of uh, private-owned airline um, execs, and they say, you know, they have uh, a reasonably good uh, cash reserve, which probably can keep them going for a while, Um, which for them actually is quite fortunate, Um, but not everybody is in the same situation.
1: Okay. That's the end of part one. As I mentioned earlier, we broke this up into two parts. Part one to focus on commercial aviation. Part 2 we'll focus on business aviation as well as what life is like at a law firm during this period. That's going to run during our fleet week, the week of April 21st. And please check out our Asian Sky quarterly, which also comes out April 21st. HFW contributed an article for that. Uh, Go to our website at asianskymedia.com. You can subscribe. It's free. And thank you all again.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on Asian Skycast. Make sure to visit our website, Asian Sky Media, where you can subscribe to the show on your phone or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show.